Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, which means today Pastor Ross and I are in the studio to bring you one more episode of our systematic theology track. Ross, today we're in topic number six out of 12, and we're going to talk about humanity. And, and really, it's it's good news and bad news. It's kind of the tale of two cities, isn't it? Yeah. If you look at human beings, you see, wow, sometimes people can just totally amaze and can be so compassionate and, and achieve great things. And at other times you look at human beings, you say, man, what's wrong with humanity? There's so much, there's, there's so much depravity and death and, and all kinds of... So, so what, what's the heart behind that? You know, what's going on in the story of the Bible that explains the heights and the depths, the paradox of, of human existence? So I guess if we're going to start with today's episode, we have to start at the beginning. We have to start with creation. What does the Bible say about humanity and how they were created? Well, the biggest thing the Bible says is that human beings are created in the image of God. So first of all, God created everything on the six days. The sixth day created human beings, and he said everything is very good. So we know the inherent original nature of humanity is very good. And now, now something went wrong, we'll talk about, of course, but the inherent original nature of humanity is very good, and a big, big part of that is, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created male and female in his image, in his likeness he made them. Yeah, and so really, we, we, I guess you could say we started talking about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the attributes of God, that some of his attributes are communicable, some of them are incommunicable. And so let's just take a minute to talk about imago Dei, or image of God, and what it does mean and what it doesn't mean, because I know some people might be a little bit confused. It's, I guess we should start by saying it, it's not saying we, we can become gods or someday work our way to godhood. Uh, that would be something that Mormonism, I guess, would teach, but right. that's not what the Bible teaches. No, it's, it's a, the Bible, the, the idea of the image of God is that humanity is like God in some respects, but, but in finite respects and that humanity represents God within creation. And so human beings you know, have qualities of God, like we talked about the, the uh, communicable attributes, but only God, is, only God possesses those incommunicable attributes of independent existence and, and eternity and, and so forth. Um, but the image of God is ways that humans are like God in a variety of ways. Now, there's a couple ways to think about that. One way is to think about, you know, uh, things, attributes, or qualities, characteristics of human beings that in some way mirror the characteristics of God. Another way to think about it is to look at the rest of the creation that God made in those six days and, and to say, what are ways that human beings are markedly different from, say, the animals? And both of those kind of hone in on that, that question of the image of God. Okay, so what, when I look in the mirror, I see a physical person. So does that mean that God has a physical body? No, it, it, does, it doesn't mean that um, necessarily. And, there, and we see the way the, this, this word image is used in the Bible. For example, in Romans chapter 8, it says that God is conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. And if it meant a physical body, then, then, then that what that would have to mean is that God is making us look just like Jesus. You know, the same size of nose, mm-hmm. the same color of hair, color of eyes, and so forth. And so it's pretty clear, and, and there's a lot of clarity in other parts of the Bible where it talks about God as a spirit, 
that the image is not a physical image. The likeness is not a physical likeness. Okay, so then when we're, let's go back to that animal, the difference between humans and animals, which again is a good way to think about Imago Dei. So we humans possess some faculties that animals don't possess. And I guess maybe some people need to sit down. Some dog lovers need to sit down right now, right? Because For a second, yeah. This could yeah. be hard to hear. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, there's right. a difference, right? Yeah. That that we possess moral, spiritual, mental, and relational faculties, which is part of what it means that we're created in the image of God. Right. If you think about animals, a moral the moral faculty you know, that, we're, that human beings, like God, are capable of making moral judgments, right and wrong. Animals don't make moral judgments. They act out of instinct. And so, you know, they're pursuing natural instincts to eat, you know, to reproduce, whatever, to be safe or whatever, but they don't make moral judgments, ethical judgments, um, like human beings do. Um, spiritual, now, the, you know... You know we don't know all, all, everything about the inner life of an animal, right? Um, but, but we have the capacity for a relationship with God. We have this spiritual nature that gives us capacity for a relationship with God and for an eternal relationship with God. The best, the, the best we know, we, animals don't have that. You never see animals, you know, animals are the sacrifice. They don't make the sacrifice. See, there's the difference is animals aren't mm. doing anything to be right with God, or animals are not, we don't say that animals sin. And so that they would need to be right with God. So there's the moral and the spiritual um, together. And then there's mental and relational. Animals, many animals are very intelligent, but they're not capable of complex, say, mathematical proofs or other philosophical reasoning. Relational, yeah, you know, a dog is a great man's best friend, right? But there's a relational faculty in human beings that we have the ability to communicate at a high level, a complex level with another, with another human being. And we have the ability, you know, to um, enter into agreements and all kinds of relational things that animals are kind of following suit. If they uh, uh, if they're um, domesticated, they're following uh, their owner, and the relationship is limited compared to a human relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so then when we read the creation story in Genesis one, God didn't say to the giraffes to go and name all the rest of creation. He, God didn't tell the elements or the elephants or the, or the king of the jung, jungle even, the lion, he didn't say you need to rule over the rest of creation. He gave that commission to human beings, and that's part of this Imago Dei. Yeah, that part of it is it's clearly in the same context that he talks about made in God's image, that he then talks about he gives us authority to rule. And so there's a sense in which, as his image bears, um, we're co-rulers with God. We're like regents or like um, you know, God has delegated his authority, his rule to human beings over creation. So there's a sense in which human beings are making God known in, a, in some way to, the, to all the rest of creation, that we stand in for God in creation. He's given us responsibility. Now, the thing is, is that this, you know, we're going to talk later about the, the negative side of human, of human nature and talking about sin and fall. Now, we, the fact is that human beings have not done a very good job of stewarding that responsibility that God gave us. Sometimes we do, many times we don't. But nevertheless, this sets us apart from the rest of creation, that we are um, given this responsibility from God to lead and govern His world. Okay, so then one more thing about 
the image of God and what this really means for us. This is the reason that we have value and worth and dignity. In fact, this is the reason that murder is wrong, for example. This is the reason that we would give as Christians to say that we should fight for the lives of unborn babies, is because mm-hmm. of Imago Dei. Right, because if, if human beings are made in the image of God, then they have intrinsic value and worth. And in fact, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 9, that's reiterated pretty clearly, and that's where it says that if anybody takes the life of a human being, then their life can be taken judicially, not um, like the vigilante. Mm-hmm. Be- and, and it gives the reason, because they're made in the image of God. But it goes it, you know, logically, it goes beyond the, the pro- prohibition of murder. You say, why should why is slavery wrong? Uh, why is exploitation? Why is prejudice wrong? Why is it wrong to um, you know to vilify our political opponents or any other um, ethnic group or whatever? Why? Because th- those persons are made in the image of God, and so they have dignity and they have worth. Okay, so let's talk for a second, Ross, about the composition of a person. Because, again, you look in the mirror and what you see is a physical body, and yet the Bible says that there's something more to human beings than just the physical body. Right. And uh, the debate, theologically, the debate has been between two words called, um, two concepts called trichotomy and dichotomy. The, The trichotomist says that the human nature is made up of body, soul, and spirit. The dichotomist says that soul and spirit are essentially the same thing. There's a physical and there's a non-physical. Now, the person who's not a, a, a Christian, say a secular uh, science, scientist, a naturalist, would say there's just really ultimately one. Everything boils down to physical, that, that basically um, your mind is a function of your brain, and all, everything that you call a soul is simply a function of biochemical reactions at some level we haven't figured out yet. Science hasn't figured it out. But the witness of Scripture is that there's the, there is this inner, um, non-material part of us. Um, but whether it's a, a tripartite or bipartite, um, I don't think that really matters that much. I think what matters is that is there's some words that the Bible uses to describe that, and some of them overlap, and they're not necessarily the same as the way we would maybe use those words in English, but that's what gives us the sense of what that inner part of us really is. So let's talk about some of those words just real quick. We don't have time to dive in real deep on this, but the Old Testament uses three words to talk about this non-material side of us, and the New Testament uses four words. So Old Testament uses soul, spirit, and heart, and then the New Testament uses soul, spirit, heart, but then they add a fourth one, they add mind. And so your point, Ross, is that these don't, we can't like perfectly map the, even just when the Old Testament uses the, the word, it might not exactly mean the same thing that the New Testament authors meant, and, right. and it might not even map really one-to-one to the way we would, maybe even the words we would use today. Yeah, just a simple illustration of that, the Old Testament word for heart doesn't, so we, the way we use the heart, the word heart today, we talk about our emotional life. Mm. My heart was broken. Uh, the way the Old Testament uses the word, the heart, it talks about really mind, will, and emotions, all of those inner aspects that, that sort of define personality. And so we, can't, we have to be careful about that, and we have to, th- to learn to think in terms of biblical categories about human beings rather than in terms of maybe contemporary psychological categories mm-hmm. about humans. 
But the point is that there, there's definitely, d- depending on where you land theologically, and we encourage people to dig into this some more, but there's, there's a physical part, there's a material part of us, and then there's the non-material part of it, whether you think of it as, as just soul and spirit is the same thing, body, mind, soul, spirit, or sorry, not body, but mind, heart, soul, spirit, it's all the same thing, or whether you, you create this distinction between soul and spirit, that, that's probably for another topic. Right, because the biblical words overlap a lot, and they don't, there's not, it's not a clean, clear-cut um, uh, system. But this scripture is very clean and clear cut when it comes to this next topic, which is the fact that God created humans as male and female. Yeah, it's very clear in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-seven, where God this is where God says, "Let us create man in our image." Man meaning humanity, the generic form of the term, and then he goes on specifically. It says. Male and female. He created humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them. So both genders express the image of God, and so both are worth, uh, have the dignity and worth of, of every human being. But God specifically spells out these two classes of human beings, male and female, and that's borne out through the rest of the book of Genesis. So, Ross, what would you, let's take a break for a second, think about our current culture what what would you say to somebody who's listening to this or who's reading the bible and reads this simple clear-cut just two choices there's not this this wide array of choices of gender which i think is what our culture is saying today what would you how would you say is a biblical response to that thought yeah i think that well the bible there's there's no um picture in the Bible of uh, non-binary gender identities, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and somebody might say, well, that's just because the Bible's archaic and, and mm-hmm. benighted and so forth. But, but really, if you look even at biology, that's the way God created human beings with a certain biology that, you know, with, with a few rare exceptions that are ab- aberrations of the norm, then biology dictates just two genders. There's right. a X and a Y chromosome, or there's a two X chromosomes. Mm. And so um, that, that's the way God made human beings physically, and then he defined it um, here as well. And so we'd have to say, well, to, to argue for um, non-binary gender identities is to argue really against even um, science and nature itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's not just arguing against the Bible. It's actually arguing against science. I think that's a compelling thing for people to consider. Uh, because again, I, I think it's important for us, especially I want to say to parents out there, I, and we know a lot of parents who whose kids are questioning this and struggling. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is because the world system's pushing them in this direction. And I think there's there's something to be said for what, not just for what God's Word says, but for what science says. And I think it it might take some courage these days to stand up for the simpler solution to yeah. this, even yeah. though the world wants to say something else, kind of follow your heart, right? Yeah. And, and do yeah. do what you want, and you can make your own definitions. But but I think that actually ends up creating a prison of our own making, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people are learning that. So there's some, even though it's not always easy to accept for people who might see it differently, 
um, it's still best for us to say, okay, God, I'm going to come to your word and let you teach me instead yeah. of me saying, I'll pick and choose what I want. Yeah. And, and the related, I think the corollary to that, though, on the flip side is say, you know, those people who disagree with us or those people who uh, feel like they're part of a gender that God did not af- define or they're non-binary or whatever, they're, still, they're also made in the image of God. Right. And so they're worthy of respect. We don't have to agree with them, but or we don't have to necessarily embrace their their choice in how they've expressed themselves, but where they're made in the image of God, and we should respect them as such. Well, and and we should, and that's one of the reasons we should engage with them and try to help them to see God's truth, because otherwise we could, if we didn't care about them, we'd say, all right, do what you want, do whatever you want. Yeah, but yeah. we we should we as Christians should care about people who, you know, there's all kinds of sin. So we're not we're not trying to point this out as the you know as the as the one really bad one. It's. Sin is basically just going your own way and saying, mm-hmm. giving, flipping God the middle finger and saying, "I'm going to do it my life, my yeah. way. I'm yeah. going to live my way. I'm going to think my way." Yeah. And and regular heterosexual folks can do that, do that as well. Plenty. And then yeah. it, it's just you know just that we get it off on a tangent a little bit. We'll talk about sin in just a moment. But what's happening today? Not as just people saying, "Oh, heck with you, God," but they're saying, "Look, this is what this is my decision, and therefore God must be supportive of it." Mm. So they're bringing God in on their side rather than just saying. F you, God, you know, they're bringing God in yeah, on their side. Right. Okay, some more, some more implications of, of the men and women created in the image of God is also then the Bible says that men and women have equal value because both genders equally express the image of God. So even though we use, we use the pronoun he for God, we're not saying that God favors men above women, right? Right, God is not male, God has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible using male, you know, God's pronouns are he, him. That's right. So um, Jesus was incarnate as a male, but God, because God is not human, he has not a physical embodied being, he's not male in the genetic sense. And so God transcends gender himself, both genders made in his image, so both are are equal. Um, and that's not always been the case in the history of Christianity. That, that you know, there's been uh, thoughts along the way that often very prominent that 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 women really are don't maybe even have a soul, or hmm. you know, um, but but we understand that they're equal. But the thing is, that the the other side of that is that within that equality, there there are different roles that men and women play in God's created order. So Genesis. Uh, chapter three, uh, chapter two. God created the male first, and created the woman as a complement or a, as a necessary um, sort of pair, pairing with him, and that has played forward into uh, roles in the home and in the church. Which again, you know, this is one of those topics that has a lot of potential for offense because someone might listen to that and say, "Whoa, whoa! I don't. That's not how I see men and women. I think men and women." Um, are equ- uh, you, that the equality of men and women, which of course we are saying that men and women are equal in in God's eyes, but that doesn't mean that their roles are equal. Mm-hmm. And and again, there's some debate on that. You might go to a church yeah. that has women pastors. You might go to a church that doesn't have women pastors. It's all dependent on how they view some of those passages from Scripture that talks about the distinction. So you know, there's there's a a range of categories here, but egalitarian would say there's really no distinction in roles, whereas a complementarian would say there is a dis, there's a distinction in roles between men and women in the home and in the church. Right, 
But I think regardless of which way you know people are interpreting some of the tricky passages in the Bible, um, what is really clear in Ephesians 5 is that both men and women are, are called to submit to each other out of reference for Christ. And our view is complementary, and so we'd say that men submit to women in a particular way and women submit to men in a particular way, but both are called to submit to each other. Nobody's called to dominate um, the other party. Okay, now let's talk about what went wrong. So, so far we've talked about image of God, male and female, God created them. So, you know, if you read up to Genesis 2, you, you can get two chapters in the Bible and everything's great, and then something happened in Genesis 3. Right, that we call this the fall of man, the fall of woman. Sin entered the world, and everything changed ever since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this you look around. To me, this is something that the Bible teaches that is the most e- easily evident proof of that in reality. You just look around and see there's something wrong with the human race. We were created in God's image. We were created. His handiwork is is good, very good. But somehow, at this point, we're not in everything God intended us to be because we've been deeply affected by sin. So let's define sin. And, you know, we, one of the ways we define it in our pursuit series and in our resources on PursueGod.org is sin is trusting and acting our own opinions and feelings above God's truth. So when we say, God, I hear what you're saying, but I, but I disagree with you, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go this way instead, which obviously was, was modeled in Adam and Eve when they first sinned and ate from the fruit ate fruit from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. So they failed to conform. Another way to say this is they failed to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Right, exactly. So we're just saying God's way, well, that's we're calling it the moral law of God. And so to not conform means to I'm going to do it my way instead of God's way. So that's a really, that's a really helpful definition of sin. And so really what that means is that every time a person sins, it's ultimately a sin against God. It's a sin against God's plan, God's purpose, God's authority, you know, God's character. Now, certainly, we sin against each other as well, and there's consequences of that. But ultimately, sin um, is a failure before God to, to do what God doesn't say, or to not do what God, or to fail to do what God does say. Um, and so, and that that's something that affects every aspect of of who we are as human beings. It can not just actions, but attitudes, motives, thoughts, words the rest. And the Bible doesn't just use the word sin. There's all kinds of words. Let's just give a quick little list here. You, you might be reading the Bible, and you'll hear it described with another word, unfaithfulness or disobedience, rebellion, unrighteousness, lawlessness, turning aside, guilt, falling away, wickedness, injustice, godlessness, perversion, and that's just, that's just a little bit of it. Yeah, that just shows... I think that shows how many different aspects of sin we have to, t- to account for, and how pervasive it can be, and it really is. And also, different, each one of those words reflects a different angle on some aspect of the, really the nature of sin. It also shows us how interested the Bible is in this issue. It's very interested in this issue because it's at the very root of our relationship with God. Okay, so let's just focus in for a minute on Genesis 3 and kind of how this whole thing unfolded, the origin of sin, because people might read that passage and maybe miss some of the nuances, some of the theological nuances that are represented there in Genesis 3. So the first human beings God created, like I said before, very good, and, and there's a relationship with God that 
Adam has, and then Eve comes along. God creates her as a gift to Adam, and then there's relationship with him. There's purpose. God put them in the garden to tend it, to care for it. God gives uh, them um, meaningful activity in life. But in spite of that, that relationship, God made one interdiction. He said, don't do this. He said, don't eat the, tr- the fruit from that particular tree. And um, when they were tempted to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's care and provision for them, they chose to disobey that single provision, that single prohibition. And that act of rebellion awakened a sense of guilt. They had been intimate with God before. Now they hid from him. It alienated them from God. They, you know, they're, they're like at odds now. And there's uh, with, from, with God and, and between themselves as well. They start uh, quarreling among themselves. And then it subjected all of creation to a curse. God says the ground is cursed because of you. You know, your childbearing is cursed because of you. Work is cursed because of you. Those are specific things that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. And it introduced death into the whole world. So before that, death didn't exist. No, animals didn't die. Trees didn't die. Plants didn't die. And humans, Adam and Eve, hadn't experienced death. But yeah. So sin introduces relational issues, sin introduces a curse on the earth, sin introduces death itself. And it introduces uh, separation between human beings mm-hmm. and God, yeah. probably the ultimate root of all of that. Yeah, which is w- really, which is spiritual death. Yeah, that's great, that's right. Okay, so if we want to categorize those consequences of sin, we can put put those consequences into three categories. And I'm a category guy, so I like how you've, how you've articulated this, Ross. The first category, then, in terms of consequences of sin, is in our relationship with God. Yeah, so sin affects our relationship with God. Certainly, the God is the lawgiver. God's holy. He's perfect. And sin alienates us from Him. And so it results in, in God's um, disfavor, and we come under His judgment because we've violated His, his law. Uh, it results in alienation and separation from God. He's holy, so he can't have the same kind of relationship with us that, that, that Adam had or that we'd like to have. It, revol- it involves in uh, a guilt and ultimately in eternal death. So, so violating God's law, alienated from him, punished for violating his law, ultimately eternal death, as you mentioned, separation from God uh, forever. Okay, so then the second category would be, would be we would just call it self. So... That sin brought destruction, kind of in an internal, in an internal way, to every human being. Yeah. How does sin affect me personally? Well, the Bible says that it makes me spiritually dead. So every human being is born in a condition of spiritual deadness in, tra- in transgressions and sins. It says in Ephesians two that we're enslaved to sin, that we're morally darkened by sin. And I think that means that we don't have the capacity really to understand what's good, fully understand what's good and what's right, um, that we'll, we'll lean toward and we'll justify what's wrong, we'll, um, our judgment is clouded by our sin. We become, the word that Ephesians 4 uses, it talks about being depraved, and that is like there's this downward spiral in people's lives. It may not be look the same for everybody. Some people are going to be just so depraved they commit heinous crimes and deserve to be, you know, in, thrown in prison. Other people are depraved in more quiet, 
private and socially acceptable ways, but there's that downward spiral. We become hard-hearted against the things of God because of sin. We become self-centered, and in some ways, selfishness is a great synonym almost for sin, and we become self-deceived. We can't see our own hearts and our own lives with clarity because of sin. And then, of course, that, that leads to the third category of sin, which is your relationship with other people. Yeah, there's so many things the Bible talks about here, but conflict, in every aspect of conflict, quarreling, dissension, you know, uh, jealousy, uh, exploitation, how people treat other pe- people as objects or treat them for their own personal gain. Uh, part of it is rejection of, of those who have authority. Um, and part of it is just, you know, kind of a catch-all is the inability, Romans chapter 1 talks about, to love, to love other people. And so the inability to really connect as deeply as we could, the inability to see things from somebody else's point of view, to empathize, the, all of the ways that love might be expressed, we become crippled um, by sin from our ability to, to treat other people that way. You know, a good way to remember these three categories is just in the words of Jesus himself. When the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? It, they were expecting one of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't give them a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. He gives them sort of the prelude to the Ten Commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So there it is. He said the, the point of God's law, the point, God's heart for people is that they would love God, others, and self. And really what when, when sin was entered in the world, it actually keeps you from loving God, mm-hmm. others, and self. And so yeah. this, ca- these, this categoriz- categorization is so good because it really is, I think, how Jesus viewed it, you know, mm-hmm. just in the simplest terms, is sin really does impact every area of your life that God wants to bring you fullness to, but right. sin keeps you from experiencing that. Right, and the, and the law was given with that sort of framework in mind, in a sense, as an answer mm. to sin, not, not that the law would... Um, enable us to overcome sin, but the law shows us clearly in all, each of those areas that, that sin is real and that we are subject to sin. Okay, one last thing before we're done with this episode. I, I think it's important to talk about the fact that sin and guilt is inherited. I think some people might say, well, look, this is, this is all Adam and Eve's fault, right? When We've spent a lot of time talking about Genesis 3, so this is all Adam and Eve's fault. It, can we really blame us, right? Yeah, this is a this is an interesting concept that that um, we can blame Adam and Eve, but we can also blame us. Okay, so every person's answerable for his own sin, and in Romans chapter three, he goes into great depth about how you know all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of glory. There's no one righteous, not not even one. And so we look at ourselves, and there's some who may be outwardly more righteous than others, but ultimately we're all tainted by this by sin. Where we all have to stand before the throne you know, of God, that final judgment one day, when we stand before the final judgment, we're not going to be judged on the basis of what Adam and Eve did. We're going to be judged on the basis of our own sin. But where did we get that nature? Where did we get that inclination, that propensity to sin? It, it, it's been handed down from generation to generation. We're, so we're also subject to the consequences of their sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve. So we begin life, you know, uh, we don't begin life as a blank slate mm. and then just learn how to sin from people or from our environment or people around us. We begin, we begin life in a condition of spiritual corruption, and we begin life alienated from God. 
And we, both of those are inherited from Adam. And you look around, you look at children, you don't have to teach them, you know, to be bratty, you know, mm. uh, to reject authority of their parents or whatever, even uh, small children. You, you have to teach them to share. You don't have to teach them to, to um, hoard the toys and so forth. So it's inherent in us from the very beginning. The Bible says, and, and, um, and experience bears that out. So there's a theological word called depravity. What, what exactly then does depravity mean? Does that because I could imagine some people are saying, "Well, but we one of our one of our two year olds wasn't wasn't bratty. One of our two year olds was a good kid." I get what you're saying, and and most kids, yeah. But but there's that every once in a while there's that gem, and you're like, I don't know. I think this is just genuinely a good person, right? Could yeah, that be? It could be. It, well. Superficially, I think it could be, <laughs> right? Because I've never met that kid. Um, you know, yeah, kids have different personalities mm-hmm. for sure, and they but they just sin in different ways. Mm-hmm. So my kids, my two kids, you know, just had uh, found each of their own niche, you could say, <laughs> yeah. in how to in how to sin. Um, yeah. So the idea is that well, every human being. So depravity again. That that's kind of a strong word in a sense because it makes you think of you know the worst criminals on death row, the worst, you know, um, murderers and rapists and serial killers and stuff like that. The word depravity simply means that we're all fallen from what we were created to be. And, um, and it affects every person in different ways. Now, it's going to affect every part of my being. We've touched on that. It's going to affect my mind, my emotions. It's going to affect my choices. And, and every person, we're not saying that every person is as completely bad as they could be. Uh, or as bad as possible, but we're saying that every person is tainted in every dimension of their being. Not every person is going to express that in the same way. Again, some are going to express it in more uh, socially acceptable ways. Mm. Um, our society, um, in American society in particular, um, you know, there's, this, there's certain forms of greed that the Bible says are sin, but that Americans um, admire. And so it's still, it's still a sin to be greedy, but it's, it's not necessarily seen as the same kind of sin as child abuse mm. in our culture. So there's, just, there's a lot of differences, but the same root cause is at the heart of every single human being. And did it affect every human being who's ever been born on the face of the earth? Yeah, from, the, from day one. Yeah. So I like, I, I like to use the illustration that it's like um, somebody dumped toxic chemicals in the headwaters of the stream. Mm. And as the, tox- as the chemicals have flowed downstream, then, it, then it's corrupted everything downstream of the source. And that somebody, you know, the, toxic, the toxicity of sin entered the human race at the very source, and it's flown downstream um, from there. Yeah, so that's, I mean, this really was... This is the bad news episode of these 12 episodes, because we've talked a lot about real heady stuff, God's nature, and, and who Jesus was, and who the Holy Spirit is, uh, but, but it's important for us to include this topic, obviously, because if you don't understand the problem, then you really can't fully understand the solution, and the good news is there's a solution to all of this. And we're going to be talking about that in the next episode. And the solution revolves around someone who was born in the stream, in a sense, right? right? Jesus. And we've talked about Jesus already. But what, 
but the fact that Jesus was the exception to the rule that he wasn't born with a sin nature, but yet he's human, and because of that, he is able to atone for our sins. And this is a concept that's really important for people to understand. If you want to under, if you want to really wrap your mind around the solution to humanity's sin problem, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. So I want to encourage people if you if you need to talk about this with your family, small group, or mentor. This is topic number six in our SysTheo series at PursueGod.org forward slash SysTheo. And make sure to join us. Don't stop at topic six because you'd be depressed. Make sure to join us <laughs> next Tuesday because we're going to talk about the atonement and how Jesus provided a solution to the fall of humanity. Mm-hmm.